Well, welcome back to the Worship and Technology Podcast from Multitracks.com. My name is Christian, and I don't know if I've told you this before, but for a long time before I joined the team at Multitracks.com, I was a worship leader in the UK and a customer of Multitracks. And one of the reasons why I loved Multitracks so much is it was the place where I could get the original tracks from the artist. And of course, if I wanted to use tracks in my service, why would I not want the best sounding tracks created by the people that wrote the songs and released the album? But it was years later that I actually realized that Multitracks.com were really passionate about serving the songwriter and the people that create these records. Can you imagine a church without new songs? How would you do your job if you didn't have this lifeblood of new incredible songs being written? I can remember the first time I heard The Blessing or Oh Praise The Name, the difference that Cornerstone made to my family when we were going through a tough time or Forever by Carrie Job, and the list goes on and on and on. Well, Multitracks.com are passionate about serving those songwriters. And when you make a purchase from our website, you're actually investing back into the life of the songwriters and of all of the people involved in creating those tracks and creating those incredible songs for you to use. And here's the great news. You don't need a huge budget to use original master tracks. With playback rentals, you can actually use tracks for under $4 per song. For a set monthly amount, we will give you from 16 plus rentals every month and you have access to over 14,000 songs to choose from. Gone are the days of investing a lot of money into one song that you might not sing forever in your church. I'd encourage you to check out Playback Rentals on our website. And one of those songwriters that we are proud to partner with is Rita Springer. Rita released her first album in 1995 and 11 albums later is still writing incredible songs. I'd never go as far as saying that one podcast episode could change your life, but I do believe that if we grasp some of the principles in some of the lessons that Rita shares with us today, it could go a long way to setting us free and enabling us to be more efficient in our service for God. So Rita Springer, thank you for being on the podcast. Welcome. Great to see you. I love multi-tracks. I'm so blessed that you guys asked me to, to talk with you. Rita, there's a couple of conversations we've had where the multi-tracks team have been incredibly jealous that I get to do this job. And this conversation, you was one of them. For anybody that's not met you before or anybody that doesn't know some of your story, can you give us an introduction to who you are and to how you found your way to where you are now? I've always predominantly done worship, leading worship songwriting for most of my life. I'm 53 now. I don't have any problem being a, a senior in this kind of beautiful, beautiful journey of worship leading and yeah. writing songs for the church and really just writing songs for the hearts of believers and non-believers alike. But I started out very young, not knowing, you know, we didn't have, there wasn't anything like what is now. I mean, anything that you guys do with multitracks is just like, that would have been a dream back then. Nobody right, even knew yeah. what that was. And I'm so grateful for those early beginnings of, you know, I thought I was going to go to Hollywood and be an actress and then go off to okay. Broadway and be a stage actress. That was all that I lived for, all that I dreamed for. So I sang very differently. Okay. But when I was home alone, and actually writing letters to the Lord on the piano, that's when I discovered there was this thing that entered the room and realizing that it was the spirit of God, the spirit of God's friendship around me. And I felt differently. And it, it just, 
was a different power than when I was on stage and hearing the audience roar with applause over a part that I had just played very well. And so I, I started really kind of consciously leading in church. By the time I was about 23, 24, I knew, I think this is the way I'm going to go. But at that point, it still looked very CCM, like contemporary Christian kind of music. Okay. Yeah. And worship was an experience that we had on Sunday mornings at church. And those songs were kind of those experiences. So I'm actually super grateful for my my beginnings because there's nothing like it. I mean, we we led worship to get the presence of God in the building so that we could see people get filled with the Holy Spirit and get healed and have their lives changed. And there was nothing, oh boy, if you had to cut your teeth on a training, that yeah. was the best training in that those new days of what what is really worship and what is this worship music thing and what are these four chord songs and this is a very different you know trend than hymns in in our hymn books yeah. and so yeah that that was basically my beginnings really started with the vineyard church okay. many years ago so if anybody out there remembers the vineyard there's still many yeah. many hundreds and thousands of vineyards around uh, some great ones in England actually but yeah absolutely the, I was a John Wimber baby I was I was sitting in that come-as-you-are congregation and having that experience of uh, meeting Jesus just as I was and not having to be perfect to meet with Christ. So I loved, I love my heritage in worship and wouldn't trade it for the world. I love that. So good. When did you first start writing songs in that journey, Rita? Really was for the vineyard. Like, I mean, I, if, if you were to go into my attic and open up my journal books, you would find songs from just a little girl, you know, written okay. in journals. Most of them are dark and probably a little morbid. <laughs> but I, when I started really learning that you could write letters to the Lord, they were usually right. always poetry or very in-depth, you know, written poetry. And so I, I started just writing choruses because choruses became popular. You okay. know, I don't know that in my age bracket, any of us sat in the Baptist churches with the hymnals and thought, oof, I want to write one of these songs. Yeah. You know, it's almost like that era yeah. was it been there, done that. Nobody could copy that era. I mean, right. honestly, we have modern day hymns, but who's ever copied that era? Yeah. It, that era is it, it kind of all in its own, and it's almost like sealed in this beautiful treasure vault. And we can write beautiful songs that are like it, that are modern day kind of excerpts from it. But that really was its own day. And so when these little choruses came about, I would just start writing these choruses. And it was The Vineyard that first published a small chorus I had written for the family that I nannied for and lived with. And their, their kid had cancer. She had brain cancer oh, wow. and ended up going to heaven even in that dilemma. We saw God do a lot, but it was through that one song that was published that went all over the world with Vineyard wow. that I, I think I actually was like, I think I'm supposed to do this for my life's career. So that's where I got started. I've heard you describe your songwriting process as, I think you actually used the phrase when I started digging for treasure. Oh, Can yeah. you unpack a little bit of your approach to, oh. to digging and, and how that plays in songwriting? Yeah. I'm not going to classify myself as old school because there's nothing old about coming into relationship with this ugh, makes me even just weepy thinking about just the presence of the Lord. And mm. God was a lifeline. He was a life raft thrown into the abyss of an ocean I was trying to survive in as a kid losing your father to cancer at a very young age and not even knowing how to, how do you navigate life as a nine-year-old without a father? Wow. And that was so big. And even though we were 
in the church and we were living as Christ-filled individuals, you don't know as a child how to be Christ-centered, Christ-filled, and Christ-aware when the only good thing about God is that, you know, he made the universe, but now you don't have a dad. So for me, writing and finding God the way that I did, I may have trapped myself in this beautiful secret closet where I found the presence of God would come the heaviest when I opened my mouth to sing. And it it didn't come the heaviest when I opened my mouth to sing about um, a boyfriend that I really wanted or, or, or something carnal. It, when I just emptied my soul and just said the most raw, real, hard things that I couldn't say to another human, but I felt that I could actually risk it saying it to God, the presence of God would come. And so I, I did. I felt like I was transformed into this diamond mind where I was cutting out these treasures in a mountainside that no one knew they were treasure except for the Lord and I. And it's hard when you start doing it publicly because you leave those moments and those moments get transported into different moments. And so it always makes me weepy thinking about those, those first encounters with the Holy spirit so pure and so new. And so, you know, um, it was like this invitation. I'd invited him to come without even understanding how he came. And then he just came and he, was my audience. And he just wanted to hear everything I had to say. And he didn't judge me. He didn't tell me that the chorus was too flat or there were not enough lyrics. He didn't tell me that, um, you know, what I've been told most of my life, that congregations would never sing this. You know, when he talked, he would always say, heaven sings these songs when you're not singing them. And so for me, when I write, it's always this, meeting space with God, whether I'm, you know, I was just in a writing room with two brilliant writers today and, and I still felt the same way with them. It's like, no, God's here. And he, he's our biggest fan. You know, whether we find a song or not, he's our biggest fan. So I don't, that was a long answer. No, that's so good. <laughs> Let me ask you about that. So you start writing out of pouring out your, your heart and love stories to God and back in vineyard movement, I think it's like 11 albums or something later writing songs. How do you keep that same sense of freshness in your approach and it doesn't become a job or a career or songwriting for another project? How have you done that? What's your secret for longevity in what you're doing? Do you have kids? I do. Yeah, I have three. Can you imagine never loving your kids? No. I, I couldn't imagine not loving the Lord. How do you fall in love with something that is like nothing else in the whole wide world and ever thinking that it's not what it is? Maybe it's just the way that the sponge of my heart soaked up the presence of God. But I mean, I remember having, I was working years ago, I was working for a very wealthy woman and she had an accountant that wasn't saved, that didn't really um, know anything about God in relationship. And we were taking a walk one day during a lunch break. And um, and she told me her story of being raped in college. And they thought um, her rapist was actually Ted Bundy. And wow. she was telling me this whole story of being held at knife point for two hours. And I, I remember her telling me the story. And the whole time she's telling me the story, I'm thinking... I don't, I don't know if I could survive this. I don't know if I could survive this. And I said to her, 
is, is that incident, is that rape why you don't believe in God? And she turned around and she looked at me and she's a, she's a Jewish woman. Right. And she looked at me and she said, Oh, I, I, I don't, I don't have relationship with God. Like you have relationship with God, but it was that moment that I knew there must be a God because I survived it. Wow. And I, I thought to myself, Whoa, like yeah. how many Christians do you know that, that give God all of their oaths and their, their commitments. And then when God doesn't do what they want the, him to do, they just write him off like it was a bad check. Yeah. And, and so I, I have to, I have to say that when people walk and journey like that and they marvel at somebody who can stay in the lane of loving Jesus, I think those people that fell out of that lane were people that never, ever really fully fell in love with God. And, and probably more import importantly, allowed God to fully love them because I'm fully loved by God. Yeah. And when you're fully loved by something, you can't imagine anything else. You know, your little children before they become teens and have all these other opinions swirling around them, they can't imagine having another parent. If you're a good parent, they yeah. can't imagine being loved by another father or loved by another mother. And I, I, for me, that's just how it's been. It's like, I can't imagine not being in with God. I just, I, I, it doesn't make me special. It doesn't make me a nun. It doesn't make me mother Teresa. It makes me someone who actually let the Lord fully love her. And when he fully loved her, she had the drop, which she was holding on to that was saying that they were the real thing because she had found out that he was actually the real thing. Thing. And it doesn't mean that he answers when you call the way you want him to answer and that he, he comes and he makes sure that you're financially sound all the time. No, life is life. You're going to have, you're going to have times when you question, why is he doing this? What is he doing? And times when you just, I mean, man, I've had years sometimes where I felt like I've stopped along on the side of the road of life and I've sat down on a small little stone and I've just told the Lord, I, I can't talk right now. I just, I believe you. I love you but I can't talk right now. My, my spirit needs to just start to sing over my carnal soul because my soul is overriding the spirit and I just can't have a conversation right now. So those things happen. Yeah. But if you really are loved by God, if you really let the Lord love you, it's over. <laughs> it's just over. You're never going to be the same. And if you can walk away from God, then you've never truly had a salvation and experience. That's incredible. You mentioned Wimber back in, in oh, your introduction. God. One of my favorite quotations ever is attributed to him. And it's this, when you know who you are and you know what you carry, nothing is impossible and nowhere's off limits. I read something so similar from you that talked about creating out of your freedom and not out of your bondage. Can you speak to that idea, yeah. the meaning behind that idea of creating from your freedom? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from, uh, let's just take it scripturally um, from Genesis chapter one. For five days, God is an artist. You know, he's a musician. He, he's creating sound. He's hanging stars. He's doing all this stuff. He's separating light and dark and making it night and day. He's doing all of this fascinating, beautiful stuff that if you were to lay out those first five days, not one of those things has ever deviated from what they were created to do. 
Right. And they've a cow's never been mad because it was born a horse. You know, uh, it wasn't born a horse or, you know, the fish in the ocean aren't mad because they get eaten by the whales. Like it's just the process of how God created it. Those things not given the attention of God that man was never deviated from the plan. The artistry of God is there. So the full freedom and deity of God is in those first five days. Then God creates something that he pours into and he wants to actually become a companion with. And so when I look at God's creative inspiration in in those first five days, he told me once when we were talking about this whole um, thing, he said, hey, by the way, I wasn't on antidepressants when I created the universe. (laughs) And I just was kind of like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I mean that it's my mercy that I let you create in your depression. It's my mercy that artists find the most brilliant paintings in their sorrow. And he's like, but I didn't need that. So what I'm saying is you can be free enough to create brilliance in your freedom. You don't have to be in sadness to create in your bondage. And he's like, look at what I did that never deviated from the plan. Think of what you could do that would never go astray or go awry. If you created out of your push for freedom than you do in your angst in bondage. So was there a moment for you when you kind of found that sense of being really comfortable with who you were and being able to then push for that freedom or operate from that freedom as opposed to... Yeah, I I, I guess it's like, you know, when you're bound, we're all bound. We all have stuff and life throws at us all kinds of stuff. And so our life is going to be a, a journey of just you know, throwing debris out of the way of our past. When my mother was dying, my brother went into her room uh, where she lay in her bed and he said to her, why is God allowing this? Like you give me a good reason. We've already been through so much in our family. Why would God not just take our father, but take our mother too? Why would he do that? Because she was such a faith-filled woman. And she, she looked him square in the face and she said, he never came to save my body. He came to save my soul and he has my soul. So whatever he chooses to do with my body or allows in my body is on him. I'm free. I was 21 when she died. And and that really kind of marinated in my soul because I thought, how do you get to being 60 years old? You've got six children. You've been widowed by a husband and you've got your youngest is in high school and you're dying And we have no money, we have nothing, but you have this solid belief that God is is faithful. And I think what she was really saying is, I've done my due diligence to let God have all of me. And so when God said, drop the baggage, I dropped the baggage. And when he said, pick up the gift, I picked up the gift. And when he said, drop your offenses, I dropped my offenses. It may not have been overnight, but she was able to discard enough along the way for her to see clearly that God had owned her highway the whole time. And I think for me, that's, that's been my revelation. I'm going to be probably in bondage till the day I die because we live in this world of bondage. But along the way, when I realized, Hey, that's probably not a good habit to keep up with, you know, and I can feel the nudge of the Holy spirit saying, Hey, can we not do that anymore? Just like I feel the Lord as a mom come to me sometimes at 12 o'clock at night and wake me up and say, hey, uh, 
don't ever say what you said to my son again, because this is how the enemy is going to take that. And you didn't mean it like that, but this is how the enemy is making him think he heard it. Well, And so I don't think I would have been coherent to ever hear the Lord wake me yeah. up in the yeah. middle of the night, if I hadn't gotten rid of five different huge suitcases right, of yeah. I'm not a good mother baggage. Okay. And if I hadn't thrown away all those insecurities of I'm not married, how can I mother properly? Nobody loves me. Nobody wants to date me. You know, all of those things that were right. in all of those years of baggage. And I, I, I started throwing those away so that I could hear the Lord clearly speak to me about my kid. How many of us have been raised with issues that we're still dealing with of things our parents said to us that they may have never met, but they said it to us out of their own lack of dealing with their own bondage. And so the most important, I think, right now in the kingdom is even what we're seeing globally, it's bondage. It's people's inability to have balance or come to a table to have a full articulate conversation because there's so much baggage on either side. Nobody's willing to discard their baggage to have a sound conversation. To me, it's the saddest thing in the church. If we can't get along as a church, I don't know where we're going to go from here. But that's kind of where I'm coming from. When you ask me questions about those kind of things, yeah, I don't want the next song that God wants to give me have, that has to be filtered through COVID and all my COVID fear and the yeah. fact that how are we going to make this and how are we going to do this and touring's off and all the fears yeah. that could be here. I'm like, we're not doing that. We're not playing this game this time. I'm not letting the enemy take something and turn it into something else because I haven't been willing to lay down my fear of... God taking care of us. Because if you have a fear of God taking care of you, and then you start doing it on your own pretty well, and then a pandemic happens, everything that's on you is going to blow up. And you're going to have to start dealing with, is God sufficient? Is God a provider? Because his name says he's a provider. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's the rubber hitting the road. And it's such a big way for the church. It's a wake up call for us. Huge wake up call in the church for us. Yeah, it really is. I want to pull at a couple of things you said there. So you alluded to your story of motherhood. And I think that's really interesting because one of the words that I've heard a lot to describe you when I've asked other people about, hey, tell me about Rita, what's your experience? So many people have described you as this mother figure and really instrumental in their story and even people that have limited connection with you. So there's a couple of people on my team that have such a lasting impression of when you came into the office and you you spoke words of prophecy into a couple of their lives. and, And it's really been quite key. And just being described as someone that deeply cares and wants to mentor and connect and champion people. Is that correct? Is that something that you're really intentional about? If you were to have asked me in my younger years, signing a record label and starting to make worship records, you know, I I saw through the bubble of what it, 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 it felt like in my heart. And then you, you sign a deal and then you, you join yourself and you partner up with what, what it's supposed to be in the sales world, okay. so what it's supposed to be in radio. And all of a sudden you're joining yourself to all these different entities. And if you would have thrown in there, oh, by the way, you're, you're going to mother the motherless. I would be like, well, I do want to have kids. I would have never, <laughs> ever related it with. But when I was in my early 20s, I remember walking And the Lord gave me Isaiah 54. He said, I want you to read Isaiah 54. 
You know, single barren woman, you who never bore a child, for greater are the children of the desolate than she who has a husband. And the thought came in my mind, okay, so I know what barren is, but single barren woman, you who never bore a child, for greater are the children of the desolate than she who has a husband. I had no idea that what the Lord was speaking was it was almost like he was padding all around me because he knew what it was I was going to face. Right. And the very heart's desire in me from the time I was a little girl, I would draw pictures of my wedding and my children and what my husband and I would do together and all these things. I was the quintessential, wanted to be a princess and come in on a carriage, you know, yeah. in marriage. There was yeah. just everything normal about me. And I never dated. And I remember 16, I was like, Lord, I want you to find my husband. And I won't even look for him. You know, and there, there was a teaching back in those days of not dating anybody that wasn't your husband. And so just yeah. no dating, like wait for God to bring your mate, which I'm not so sure now that I would ever tell my son to do that or a teenager to do that. But for me, it just sat with my heart and I just didn't do anything. And I just thought God was big enough to bring whoever he was, you know, and that would be great. And as the years went on, I wasn't a mother. My 20s had disappeared. I was entering into my 30s. But then, you know, it got really kind of hip to have kids in your 30s. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm still there. I'm still yeah. there. And it never occurred to me. And I started having fibroid tumor issues. And so my OB was saying, you better have kids in the next five years or you'll never have kids. And I just was like, yeah. God's never going to let that happen. He's never yeah. going to let that happen. My journals are full of the desires of my heart. He's never going to let that happen. And all of a sudden, I become a mother by way of adoption. And even in that, the Lord was like, hey, I father the fatherless. How about you start mothering the motherless? And the whole journey with Isaiah 54, I was thinking to myself over and over, how do you sing like you have something when you don't? Because that's what the scripture says. Yeah. Single barren woman, you who never bore a child, for greater are your children than of her who doesn't even have a husband. And I thought, so God wants me to sing like I have something I don't. Right. And it took me years, years until one night just before I adopted Justice, I was talking to the Lord, sobbing, crying, I'm sure, about being so alone because loneliness will kill you and just anguishing over not being a mother and being single and thinking that's the only way to be a mom. And the Holy Spirit just said to me, you know, I said, how do you sing like you have it when you don't? And, and the Lord said to me, it's right there. And I said, where? And he goes, right there. Sing, sing. And so all of a sudden, he deconstructed what singing meant. Okay. Because I had, you know, I, I put singing in what I do for God. What I, you know, I'm a singer. You know, I do this thing for the Lord. And he said, you proclaim. You proclaim. Anyway, you proclaim. The worship that's going on in heaven, the, the, the strike up the lyre, the, all those things that Psalms talk about, it's all about proclamation. It's all about oh, proclaiming yeah. the Lord. And he's like, it's been sitting and staring at you the whole time. Proclaim. You're not proclaiming. You use the word wait as if something's being held back from you when the meaning of wait means to sit with expectation for something. And so I just gave in and I was like, then I'll be a mother. Okay. And the most beautiful thing God gave me in my life, I, I ended up adopting this baby at birth. 
still at 53, I'm, I'm not married. And when my son was born, they thought that I, um, well, I, I had to have this major surgery to have all these fibroids removed to save my uterus. And when he was six, they thought I was full of cancer. And wow. so they had to um, give me a hysterectomy. So I remember sitting in the pre-op room, getting ready to go into the operation when they made you sign this thing that said, what you were about to agree to will render you barren and unable to ever give birth to a child. Talk about reality check. Yeah. And I remember I sat there and I the, just the, the hovering of the spirit of God came over me and I just started weeping. And I thought, I'm six years into being a mother. I'm six years into mothering this kid. And that is enough. And that was my one opportunity to do it close to my heart. And I have spent the last six years doing it spiritually, and I never really fully even saw it. Yeah. And now he's 15. I've got kids all over the world. Yeah. And it is the most beautiful. I feel like my quiver is full. I don't even know how to describe it to you. I don't grieve, ever grieve about never having a child. I did all that right. grieving in the past. Yeah. That adoption broke things off my life that I can't even begin to describe to you. And set me on a path to believe that anything was possible, even the things that you can't even imagine God would allow. That as they're allowed, the presence of God coming in and stitching up all of the wounded areas to where your scars tell your story, they don't define you by their wounding. Well. Wow. Yeah, so I'm privileged and take a great honor every time my phone lights up and it's, hey, mama, I'm, hey, ma, yeah. you know, do you want to do dinner on Friday night? Hey, mama, can you call me? I've got something I need to talk to you about. Hey, ma, my divorce is in crisis. We need to talk. You know, it's like I've got more kids than any of my friends yeah. and now have more grandchildren, you right. know, <laughs> than anybody I know. So, so it is quite beautiful. It's a quite what beautiful. What a privilege. That's amazing. Yeah. I always felt disrespectful referring to you as a mother. But no. it's so, hearing your story, it's like, wow, that's like. No. You know, yeah. my given name is Marguerita. It's a French version of Margarita. Margarita Estelle, it was after my grandparents, Margaret and Estelle. And Margaret means the pearl or the mother pearl. Wow. And so it's it's really interesting that even the meaning of my name has always yeah. carried the word mother. Wow. So yeah, it's been it's been great. Isn't God amazing? I'm going to ask you a, a timely, difficult question. Uh, yeah. um, forgive me for this, but we've had a couple of conversations recently. One just yesterday with a friend of mine called Noel Robinson, a black worship leader here in the UK. Yeah. We spoke to Chandler Moore from Maverick City yeah. just last week, and we started tackling the very real issue that's affecting the globe and the church right now about racism and prejudice. And for a white guy living in the UK who certainly sees our fair share of both, it was enlightening to hear these black gentlemen uncover their experiences. I think you have a unique, I know from your Instagram stories and from your posts, you have a unique insight on what's going on because of justice, your teenage son, who's a black young man. Can you give me your insight? Can you give me your kind of take on prejudice and racism and how we tackle that huge issue inside of our church culture? Yeah. And honestly, I mean, I, I don't know that I, the only thing I could say is where I'm at in this corner of all of this happening, looking from a corner out to what's happening and staying in this corner to try to regulate, okay, Lord, what is you? What is not you? 
Where are you at? Where are you not at? I have to do that before I make a lot of assumptions or opinions about things. Because right now, what we're seeing, especially here in the States, is we are living in one dynamic thing, and that is the the pool, the cesspool of opinion. Right. And our government is in a cesspool of opinion. And, you know, somebody, one of the writers today that I was in a session with, made this really great point of, you know, years ago when they started to first air commercials or advertisements during elections where one opponent was taking another opponent down, that should have never been allowed because what it does is it filters in this competition, this this kind of dirty competition thing that makes it okay to feel publicly wrong about somebody. Right. I'm not staying neutral. I'm very grounded in what I think is wrong and what I think is a recovery for us. But I live in the South and I was telling my family who's, we're all West Coast people. We grew up in Southern California and now they're, most of them are in the Pacific Northwest dealing with all of that over there. So it's this, I talked to them about it. I was like, you know what? Because they were asking me all these questions and I'm like, well, I've been living in the South for over 20 years. So I've been out of the West for over 20 years. In the, the West Coast mentality, if you dug in the ground, you'd find pans of, of people panning for gold. Right. If you go to the South and you dig in the ground, you may find the slaves, the bones of slaves. So right. those are two completely different areas yeah. of things happening. You know, you rushed to the West. Yes, there was slavery in the West because even the building of the, of the railroad you had, um, you know, uh, Chinese slaves. People were making, you know, Chinese people slaves building on the railroad. So it's all around us everywhere. But I don't quite know if we're really addressing the issues that need to be addressed. And are we getting sidetracked by what's not really the case? My son's black, so his black life sure does matter. Yeah. And I will, the mother bear in me will stand to defend that. I wasn't born with a racist spirit. I don't have a grid for it. I never have had a grid for it. Therefore, it's foreign to me when people are like that. It's not in my wheelhouse. It's not in my grid. But what the Lord's had to say is, yes, but you have said this and this about those kinds of people. And that's a racist. And I'm like, oh, 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 oh. So this isn't just about a people. It's actually yeah. a spirit. Right. It's like a spirit within okay. us, the yeah. spirit of criticism, the spirit of tearing down, the spirit of rejection. And until we fully deal with that spirit and how it got in, not just to the world and the earth, but into the church, and the church has allowed it, mm-hmm. and one of the greatest sometimes instigators of it, unfortunately, we're not going to ever deal with the problem. We're going to talk about the problem. We're going to protest about the problem. We're going to do some really good things to try to change things. And we're going to make a little bit of progress. But until I change in how I raise my son, until a new mother in the South doesn't, who's been raised in like South Georgia or someplace to think in racist terms, raises her children without racist terms, um, we're never going to change. It's just never going to change. Because people tend to just keep chewing on the same gum that they've been given year after year after year after year. And I would like to see us unearth as individuals, unearth the areas of criticism in us because that same 
critical spirit is the thing that keeps us from being what God has called us to be. Because yeah. what I'm seeing is I, I'm, I'm seeing a criticism, a rejection of a hatred for that turns into this bitterness and hatred. And that root runs rampant in a soul. And the, the hell feeds off of all of that stuff. And then hell regurgitates it and throws it back on and then regurgitates it and throws it back on. So talking to justice about it has been like, I've actually been kind of quiet on Instagram recently because after, you know, Atlanta and after all the stuff that happened after George Floyd and the looting, and I just didn't know what to think anymore because I was like, none of this is going to change. Like I almost felt disheartened, but just almost like, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to get out of this? How is my kid ever going to, and all of these things. And I had to pull back and bury my face at the cross, just bury my face at the cross because he's the only one that knows persecution. He's the only one that understands racism. He's the only one that is still rejected by his own people as the Messiah. And I have to lean into that chest wall of God and say, only you can change us. And so what's my part? And, you know, my precious sister called and her daughter's married to a black man and she's got biracial black children. And, and we're just this beautiful mixed family. And she was saying to the Lord, like I was like, what do we do? What, what's my role? What's my role? And she said, the Holy Spirit just said, on your knees. That's your role. Get on your knees. And I've never seen anything change when we fill it with super so when we fill up super soakers with olive oil and we ratatat it into the grounds where slavery took place you know i've never seen slavery overcome the spirit of slavery overcome that way i've only seen change when people get on their knees and they begin to cry out for God to change them and for yeah. God to change the church and for God to, to eradicate hate from our language. And yeah, there's things that we can do to help our progression, but I am afraid the only thing that's going to change the world is if we start to pray and cry out and ask God for a massive turning. Maybe I'm wrong, but when I look back at scripture, which is my manuscript for living, nothing changed unless people cried out. Israel would fall away. They would cry out. God would hear their cries. Israel would fall away. They would cry out. God would hear their cries. It's the repetition of the human core. It's we need God. Well, maybe we're okay without God for a while. Oh, no, no, no. We need God. We need God. We've seen the pattern of it in scripture, and we know that there is a last day. And we know that in between the once coming and the coming again, he just keeps saying, um, pray, 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 cry out. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are powerful, powerful prayers. Yeah. And I look at my child and, you know, I, I said to him, I had this great idea. I thought it was a great idea. I'm like, we're going to go down to the two cities that we're in all the time here in, in Nashville area. We're go- I'm taking you down to the precinct. I'm taking you down to, to the police headquarters. And okay. I'm going to have a meeting with the chief of police. And I'm going to introduce you to the chief of police. And I'm going to say, hey, this is my son. And once you see his face, and I want you to know he's going to be driving soon. I'm teaching him how to drive. He's going to get his permit. Then he's going to get his license. And if he does anything illegal or makes a mistake, 
in that vehicle and you see that and you pull them over, I want you to give him the fine that he needs much like you would do that to me. But if you're going to pull him over just for the color of his skin, then I want you to see his face right now. I want you to know who he is. I want you to know what kind of a kid he is. And I want you to be warned. He's on your streets and he's a good kid. And if you so much as do what other cops have done, we won't let you get away with it. You know, and that's the mama bear in me coming out. That's like, (laughs) you're not going to mess with my kid. Also trying to build the bridge to say, look, we want to meet you where you're at and say, we Mm. honor your authority. We believe that you must have had a dream to become the chief of police. You're you're the chief of police. So we're trusting that you know what you're doing. Yeah. And I'm entrusting my child to feel safe with you know what you're doing. And if he doesn't feel safe, when in your role, with you in your role, then we've got a problem. And I'm not going to be quiet if there's a problem. I wonder what would happen if mothers and fathers came down to the precinct with their black children and said, can we meet around the table? Because we know that you protect our society. It's very, very documented that you protect our society. But we're also asking for you to examine your heart. Yeah. And make sure that you get rid of your baggage so your baggage doesn't pull my son over and try to, to make him feel bad for being the color of his skin when really it's your baggage. It's your baggage. And that's what it's about. The whole George Floyd incident had nothing to do with George Floyd. Yeah, they came to render a call that came in. But the cop had his own baggage that he was dealing with when he put the knee to that poor man's neck. Yeah. And it wasn't up to George Floyd at the time. It wasn't anything George had done or his past mistakes or his past offenses. At that point, at that moment, it was the baggage of that officer who was who was controlled by a different spirit because he didn't want at the time to get free. And if we don't get free, I'm afraid of what's going to happen in this country. If the church doesn't get free, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to this country. You know what I am excited for, though? Yeah. I'm excited for the songs. Right. Okay. I'm excited for the rhythms and the melody lines that God is spinning right now in this season into writers and new writers and singers. I think God is saying things, and we are in a harbored place to have nothing to do but listen. And I am praying that writers start listening because I think God's going to start releasing melody lines from heaven that start changing characteristics that are from hell. Can I do something? I'm going to follow the prompt in what I think God's saying to me right now. Uh, We've never done this in a podcast before. What I'd love to ask is if you would pray that over our listeners. Could we close this podcast with you praying that prayer that the song would rise up in the hearts of those that are listening to the podcast now? Absolutely. Father God, I'm going to stand and ask today as a mom, as a good mom, not a mom who abandons her kids or a mom who has so much wound and hurt in her heart that she can't think past her own pain. I'm asking as a woman who believes in the power and the presence of the God of the universe, that you are doing something that a lot of us can't see. Some of us can sense it, but not all of us can see it. And I'm asking that you would begin to hover over households all over the world, 
over creatives in households all over the world. And that you would right now descend past their own agendas, past how they thought it was supposed to go, past even their tour cancellations and their booking declines, and that you would speak into the place inside their soul where their artistry thrives and where creativity breathes, and that you would allow just the master sound and the master melodic tones of heaven to override the oppression in the household, the baggage of perhaps undealt with things. What I even sense that there are are those maybe listening who are struggling in their marriages more so now in confinement than ever before. And so the, the questions that are looming are pressing down against people's minds that almost take them out from places that you want to bring them into. Because why wouldn't the enemy try to change the subject in a moment when you've got us confined to listen? And I ask God that you would pour out anything that we have locked in our ears, that you would push out all of what is blocking the sound of your voice out of our ears and the ears of our spirit, and that you would begin to sing melodically over households, that we would catch rhythms, that we would catch melody lines, that we would catch lyrics from heaven that actually become swords and weapons in the atmosphere. And that the church would learn not to sing the next greatest song that sounds perfect, but they would grab a hold of the sword that slices through and cuts division right out of the atmosphere. And I'm asking you, God, to hover over us in our greatest time of need. I believe, God, that your power can heal any divide, that your presence can heal any anxiety. And so we ask for you to come, we ask for you to move, and we ask for our hearts, even in their carnal state, to push out of our carnality into the Spirit and believe that you have something more. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.